Welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. In today's episode, Croc Institute Mediation Program Director and Professor of the Practice of Mediation, Lori Nathan, sits down to talk with Nicholas Haysom, a South African lawyer, diplomat, and former United Nations envoy who has been involved in several high-level conflict mediation efforts. Their conversation was recorded in November 2019. It's a pleasure to welcome Nicholas Hasem to the Croc Institute. I'm Larry Nathan, director of the Croc Mediation Program. Nick, also known to his friends as Fink, is a South African involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, involved as a lawyer representing trade unions, and then as President Mandela's constitutional law advisor. Fink has subsequently worked in many senior positions in the United Nations as a mediator and a special envoy. Countries of deployment include Sudan, South Sudan, Somalia, Burundi, Afghanistan, and Iraq. So we really have a vast amount of political experience in mediation. So first question then, Fink. What do you love about mediation? You know, at the heart of it, is the sense of achievement in finding a formula which both parties can live with but which eluded their capacity to find on their own. And in that sense, there's the personal achievement of having made a contribution, but there's also the sense of having contributed to others' ability to make the right step forward. And why does the solution elude them? I mean, it's not because you're that much cleverer than them, although you may be, (laughs) but the solution eludes them. Why? If I can take a step back, I think constitutional negotiations require you at the outset and as a a priori assumption to accept that constitution-making is a quintessentially sovereign act. Other people can't make constitutions or find the arrangements by which citizens will live together other than the citizens themselves. But that's not the end of the matter. My experience is that people are particularly limited in their capacity to think through their problems because in the sense that they're held hostage by their own histories, experiences, ambitions, intellectual as well as other traditions, domestic traditions. So what the mediator does is he brings to the table extra tools, helps expand their imagination, and should not be afraid or ashamed of the fact that he's making those suggestions. But he always knows that Mm. the decision must lie Mm. with the people themselves. That's really the way we approached it in South Africa. I say that because there's a kind of a question mark being put recently on international comparative constitutional advisors. And some feel so intimidated by the question that's implicitly directed at them, are you interfering or selling as a product? that they lose confidence in Mm. doing what they should be doing. Mm. So your job is not to sell an idea to the parties, but to help the parties reach an agreement that they can genuinely live with, because you're walking away from this at some point. Exactly, exactly. I think it's very important to recognize that 
the, the adage that implementation is everything. And most agreements fail in the implementation phase, either because the parties don't have ownership or understanding of the agreement. And so it's really critical to have the parties realize that it's their agreement. They reached it. And that must mean that they want it, which means that they are able to restore their relationship to some extent or develop a relationship that is less adversarial and filled with rancor and enmity. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's one approach will cover everything, but there's certainly one approach which says put your differences on the table and confront them in which you acknowledge that what you're doing is trying to manage those differences and do it explicitly and do it in good part and good humor. But there's another one which says your problems are common. You share a common destiny. You have to live together. This is an issue which faces you both and in which they collaborate effectively with each other in finding that solution. But that requires a lot of heavy lifting on your part because they can't see that potential initially. They're trying to destroy each other. So the idea that they need to collaborate in order to shape a common future it requires an enormous shift in mindset. Yeah, it's never going to be perfect. South Africa was a rare example where very both sides were trying to find a new way of living together. But that's very rare. It's so rare that I don't often take the South African experience as a model for virtually everything I've done since. But in theory, what I try and do is to try and get the parties to understand that their enemy, and you can refer to him as the enemy, is also their partner and refer to him also as the partner. The two have to collectively lift it together. That's in a bilateral negotiation. Of course, not all negotiations are bilateral, but let's use that as the model. And the critical breakthrough is in getting the parties to realize that their partner's problems, that which limits their partner's capacity to move and make a compromise in this high-risk, very important game of which then they're probably a bit insecure, requires them... To understand that if their partner can't move, they can't get what they want. So to encourage the partner to move means also helping him deal with maybe his own constituency, maybe making the kinds of concessions to him which strengthens his hand with his own people. In the literature, the scholarly literature on international mediation, an assumption often appears that one of the primary functions of a mediator is to share information, sometimes even secret information, with the parties. I'm not convinced that that's what mediators really do, or certainly that, that it's a primary function. What's your view on inf the sharing of information by mediators? You know, I must say it was important when I was a labor mediator. In the issues when you're dealing with a, a very tense situation on the shop floor, sometimes you need to know what's the background thinking, and you need to give the assurance to the parties you're not going to share it with the other side. So that's a sort of trust building, requires a trust building exercise at the outset. Quite frankly, in political negotiations, I haven't found that it doesn't, it's not that level of secrecy which requires. You don't need to know what the company's bottom line is on a profit sheet, but in political organizations, mm. the stuff is much more explicit. But it's conceptually possible that there would be things that the parties would want to share with you in confidence. Yeah. In, when I'm mediating and parties request confidence, my response is, if you insist, yes, but my job is to facilitate communication between you. So don't ask me 
to keep confidence. I mean, where does that get us if a party is saying to the mediator, please keep this secret? Well, it, this is the sort of circumstance in which it may arise is when you say to the party, I just don't understand why it is that you're not prepared to meet this reasonable demand. Mm-hmm. And he might say, well, look, my intelligence sources tell me that this demand is actually about issue A and not issue B, but that's between us. Then it puts you in the position of understanding, but it also exposes you to manipulation. You've got to have your eyes wide open. How do you deal with a kind of personal dislike that you may develop for some or more of the negotiating party's leaders when they are arrogant or supercilious or trying to manipulate you or bully you? Does it ever become personal? I try not to let it become personal. And uh, I think, you know, if you're going to step forward as a mediator, you've got to impose a kind of personal discipline on yourself to work well with everyone. There are issues, however, that will provoke me, and I think I will rightly respond in a tough way. Threatening the mediator, bullying the mediator, and sometimes the sort of naked instrumentalization of the mediator to discipline the op- opposition. You go and tell the opposition this, and you better make it clear, and if they don't do this... And, and so I think in order to preserve your position as a mediator, sometimes you need to say, I don't do that, and don't tell me how to do my job. I will do the job as I think. But you would not want to get into that position, but that, it, it can, certainly that can happen. And the fact that you, in civil wars or in armed conflicts, are dealing with people who have done some really pretty ugly things, they've been responsible for large-scale mm. killings, sometimes atrocities, mm. destruction of villages. Does that cause sleepless nights? How do you deal with that kind of ethical tension? No, not really, no, quite frankly. You deal with the people across the table, your eyes are f- firmly looking forward. Your job is to stop the killings that may yet happen. You are trying to stop and save people's lives who haven't as yet been threatened. And I think you've got to be uh, fixated on that and also not be holier than thou. Mm-hmm. A lot of us could be in uh, awkward positions if we had been front men for our communities in conflict settings. So I've seen mediators strike a pose of righteousness that comes across as condescending and self-righteous. Mm. And the parties find that insufferable. Mm. They don't like to be scolded or lectured Mm. on ethical grounds, even if they deserve the lecture. Yeah. No, I try and build a kind of basic level of empathy with people. I I try and listen to them and use the active listening techniques and so on without communicating acceptance of their uh, initially their viewpoints. But I think my sense is that although mediators themselves are not aware of it, parties are almost finely intuitive Mm. about the attitudes of the mediator. In a way, you don't think you're communicating it, they will pick up the condescension or they will pick up the distaste that you have for them or their parties. When you are reporting back to your bosses at UN headquarters in New York, do they get mediation? Do they understand its limitations, its potential? Do you feel that they sometimes are placing unrealistic demands or have unrealistic expectations of you? My approach to reporting back is on a need-to-know basis. So I tend to do outcomes 
spoken to the parties they've agreed to do this rather than take them into the blow by blow and someone like as a boss although we were technically in the same rank someone like jeff feltman mm. was someone who really expected me to do my job and not to harass him with accounts of what I've said to whom and what they said to me. Others, of course, you know, want a more detailed accounting, although uh, I must say in general people have, at least towards me, I've seen them do it towards others, try and control, manage, direct, target and aim mediators. With me, I've been given a relatively free hand. Which is probably a reflection of your confidence and your experience and competence. I mean, I, I, I get a sense... It also is the philosophy of delegation. I, I myself am a proponent of... Yeah. When you delegate, give the authority to do the job and the way of doing the job to the person you're delegating to. And I'm finding, actually, people don't understand that. Uh, don't like delegating. When they do delegate, they then try and manage it. Is there also possibly the problem... One sees it sometimes from the humanitarian community and from donors, the misunderstanding of the power of the mediator. The mediator is beholden to the parties in a sense. But the belief that you can wave your magic wand and make peace in Syria or wherever. That's right. And you get instructed as to what to tell the parties to agree to, as if you have some hierarchical Mm. capacity to impose positions on the parties. Will you get this? You tell them that we won't do this and you say that. I think it misconceives the nature of them. So so I'm looking for some elaboration because, again, much of the scholarly literature that focuses on mediation does not look at negotiation and it doesn't look at the parties. So the critical decision makers are kind of absent. They are out of focus. Mm. And there's a sense that the outcome of the mediation, success or failure, depends on the mediator's strategy and tactics. The parties do not appear to be relevant at all in this literature. Well, I mentioned to you today I had the one experience where I offered and uh, then gladly executed an education program for the Taliban in how to negotiate. But in the course of the preparation for that, I asked the UN for materials on negotiations that we could see if we could put together a package for them. Absolutely no materials in the possession of the UN about how to negotiate. Only bags and bags of stuff on how to mediate. And I thought it was illustrative of the failure to properly understand that mediation is just a form of negotiation. Yes. Yeah. So just to repeat, this is a line that you use in the high-level training for the UN. You say the mistake sometimes is that we imagine that negotiations is a species of mediation, when in fact the relationship's the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. So mediation, for those not familiar with it, is a form of facilitated negotiation. And you are facilitating a bargaining process between parties. Yeah. And people even forget that it is possible to have a negotiation without a mediator. And they frequently assume that a negotiation implies the necessity of a mediator. And I, yeah, I think that says something. In fact, of course, and I'm sure, Laurie, you appreciate this, agreements reached through face-to-face negotiations between only the two parties relying on their own resources and their commitment to each other are much more effective and durable than those that are mediated. So in relation to that point, what's your view on leverage? And it's a difficult question because leverage covers a lot of ground. You can have leverage in the form of 
coercion, threats yeah. of different kinds, yeah. and in the form of inducements and yeah. incentives. Yeah. Sometimes leverage is about a moral authority or simply a unified international community. Yeah. Leverage, if it's pushed too hard, can invite kickback, yeah. but sometimes it can be useful. So it's a complicated issue. It's a very complicated issue. You will recall, Laurie Oren, uh, my own engagement with Nelson Mandela Madiba in the Burundian negotiations where he literally had a meltdown when the Burundians refused to sign on the last day. And the question was subsequently, because he used maximum leverage, he, mm. he brought in Bill Clinton and others, he dressed down the parties, and eventually they signed. And the open question afterwards was, would the parties maintain their commitment to the agreement because they were clearly unha- signing unhappily? As it happened, that agreement did work, and they did commit to it. And I think it's for another reason. It's because the agreement itself contained and necessarily required collaboration between the parties, which came to form the basis of a working relationship between parties that could not have done that until the agreement was in operation. But to go back to the Madiba question, when is it? When is arm twisting? Go, when does it go too far? I think when it begins to seriously raise the question as to whether the parties are committed to it. In other words, whether they voluntarily signed on or signed on to escape the pressure. And it becomes all the more relevant because there are increasingly diverse forms of pressure on parties to sign peace agreements. In the United States, the threat of being categorized as a spoiler, potential sanctions, or just the positive ululation which happens when you're seen to sign an agreement. A lot of people sign agreement with a dubious level of commitment, which brings us back to the issue that one of the foremost requirements for implementation is political will. And political will will vary, or may vary across the uh, implementation phase. So, you know, the question of consent becomes important for those reasons as well. I think the the truth still remains, the bottom line, the basic principle. Agreement's an agreement because it's reached between two parties voluntarily. The mediation assists that, yeah. and if the parties are not signing voluntarily, it goes to the heart of the question of whether the agreement can be implemented. So this is pragmatic rather than normative. In other words, the pragmatic consideration here, especially if it's an interstate conflict, yeah. meaning that the belligerent parties are not going anywhere. They are fated to coexist yeah. in the same territory. If they don't genuinely consent to both the process of mediation and the outcome, you don't have any viable peace agreement. Yeah. So the danger of too much pressure yeah. is that they sign for short-term effect with long-term negative consequences. That's right. And I think another point I've made in other contexts, Laurie, is that there's been such a premium placed on the signature and on getting the signature that, and on the media, mediator keeping in position until he has the signature, that people are very unwilling to call a spade a spade and to say this agreement is not going anywhere, or this agreement is being negotiated in bad faith, or even more fundamentally, I'm walking out of this agreement until I see a change of attitude and real evidence of political will. And I think mediators have given up one of the few instruments they have to exercise leverage and achieve a sustainable agreement. Because I think we don't use the word sustainable, but it's always implied. We're there to get a sustainable agreement, not an agreement. Yes. 
And we have many spurious agreements because the parties are under so much pressure, threat of ICC indictment, threat of being accused of spoiling. So you sign the agreement to get everybody off your back. That's right. And those agreements are not sustainable. Then, now, so think, I want to come back to the question of how you as the mediator can help shift the personal political relationship between the parties. In other words, there is a substantive dispute. There are substantive causes of the conflict, but there is also a psychological dimension. And the parties are filled with hatred and fear and anger and suspicion. How do you calm them down without patronizing them by saying calm down? How do you absorb and manage those emotional, psychological dynamics? Yeah. To some extent, it's the sort of logic of finding common ground. It's mm. a logic of having both parties share a responsibility for avoiding a disastrous outcome, for sharing the possibility of a glorious future together, of understanding the commonalities which bind them, including co-citizenship of the same geographic space. But I'm a great believer in putting the parties together yeah. eventually. Yeah. There's not a lot of attention given to it, and I know we've done courses together, and I can't recall it ever being raised, but the question of when to keep parties apart and when to put them together yeah. is a very critical judgment yeah. uh, question. But bringing them together, sometimes bringing them together one-on-one -on -one without anybody around just in this room, or bringing them together with their teams, all of those things are, can be important in trying to forge, uh, to temper the, the personal dislikes you know and when people don't meet each other everything is potential cause for offense so mm -hmm. oh he's not going to meet in half an hour does he think i'm just going to wait half an hour so the smallest issues become big issues once the parties suspect the other side yeah. despises them but sometimes keeping them apart is a sound strategy oh yeah you know especially if they're volatile and in the mood of insulting each other Bringing them together is counterproductive. So Exactly, precisely. You have to make the judgment yeah. on when to bring them together, and you're able to bring them together more productively when you think there there is already some common ground that you yeah. are able to point out that you see common ground between them that they haven't seen yet. Yeah, so I think you have to pick the issues. I think, you know, where, where, you know the... The mediator there really, what he has to play with is the gender, he has to play with the issues, yep. presentation of the issues, and the form in which the parties meet. All of that, you know, can be creatively managed so as to start to build relationships. What do you do when one of the parties is very weak as a negotiator, and that is making life difficult? If they're not confident as a negotiator, they will tend to say no. They will tend to be resistant. Mm. And the stronger party starts to get frustrated that the weak party is not seriously negotiating. They're just stonewalling. Mm. Can you help a weaker party? Or is there a risk that you will be perceived then as biased in favor of that weaker party? I'd like to say we can never argue on behalf of one of the parties. You can't take on their role. In truth, though, very often, particularly in the shuttle diplomacy part, you, it's your task to put his argument in the most effective way, at least the most appealing, compelling way. That's if you want to get the agreement. So maybe we always accept at least some part that we take on the personalities of each of the parties. Sorry, your original question was? 
Well, the need to support a weaker party and then the risk. So then there's the the issue of how to get parties to be, let's say, so comfortable with the process that they would be willing to be risk takers. Quite frankly, time is a great uh, and example and experience. Mm -hmm. So the longer people are, quite frankly, at their worst when these negotiations start. Yeah. And as they go on, they get more comfortable with it. They get to understand the game. They get comfortable with the rule, the implicit applied rules, particularly the implied rules about what you agree you stick to because there's nothing worse than people who agree on Monday and change their minds on Wednesday. However, you will have encountered situations where you're building a rapport with the negotiators at the table. And the negotiators are developing a rapport with each other from the opposite sides. Yeah. And they're starting to forge agreements. But their principals, their leaders, are not happy with the progress that's being made and are trying to rein them in. You need to talk at some point to the leaders. How do you manage this kind of tension that you might be making more progress at the table than the top leadership is willing to bear? I think you you either ignore it or you let it run or you start to talk to the leaders. You make a point of trying to see the leaders at some stage. Yeah, we'll commend the progress that's being made in that other channel. In Somalia right now, there's a channel which is much more technical but making much more progress than the leadership is making. And we struggled when I was there to find a way of trying to elevate that committee and let it be the bearer, the driver, of the, let it carry the baton. Yeah. But it's difficult because leaders don't want other people to carry the baton. You're alluding to what could be seen as a mediator's technique which is to take political issues and turn them into technical issues in order to diffuse the heated politics. Everybody knows it's a game that we're playing, but you treat the sensitive, politically sensitive issues as a technical issue mm. with technical expertise in order to make some progress. Oh, yeah. It's uh, been a significant tool of the mediator, what I call technicize the issues. Sometimes that's a little pejorative because the issues do have a technical component, but if you can put them in their technical context, take them out of sometimes a politicized reading, Mm -hmm. it also allows you to bring in technical experts to resolve the issue. Because the one thing about technical questions is that it's capable of resolution without political compromise uh, through technical means. I was thinking, for example, of ceasefires, which are very politically sensitive, but you can treat a ceasefire at the technical level. Where will your troops be positioned? Yeah. What kind of buffer between you? Yeah. What kind of third-party yeah. monitoring and yeah. support? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think before we close, since this podcast is going to be listened to by students, they will have a question for you, mm-hmm. which I ask on their behalf. They will say, I want to become a mediator. Yeah. What advice would you give them? I'm obviously asked that question often. There's kind of limited space for mediators, but a you know, growing army of people who want to play roles in conflict resolution. You know, my advice is to get whatever experience you can get. Sometimes it's slightly out of the field, but sometimes it's simply being a part of a process. Join a process where a mediation is taking place. Join the government agency or section of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs which is dealing with the mediation. And even if you're not the mediator, pick up experience on engaging with the issue of how to formulate agendas, of working on the margins, sometimes working in the track too. 
because it's only through that that you can then lay claim to kind of other roles in the mediation process. The one thing I would sort of encourage uh, younger students to recognize is that mediations, or should I say the conflict resolution business, is now admitting of a much broader variety of roles. Mm -hmm. And I think the notion of a sort of lone man mediator is gone. I know last year we would be using NGOs to do the talking to some of the armed groups, while we'd be using other people to do research and other people to do training for some of the groups. So there's a proliferation of engagement by NGOs and other groups, which probably wouldn't have been supported a few years ago. And interestingly, both you and I developed our mediation experience at the domestic level. Yeah. So... Is this a sound strategy for students that instead of trying to jump up to the big civil war international mediation, that they look for mediation training and opportunities in their own communities? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And quite frankly, I learned an enormous amount by doing labor uh, industrial dispute mediation. And in a way, it's there that one learned the confidence to be quite creative or innovative in your texting. I'm not, you know, to say to parties, I'm not, I don't want you to talk to each other today or I want you to bring your whole teams tomorrow or I want the two of you to talk together or I want to see the two of you in my office. Just playing around with formats, particularly if they haven't done it before, that's not the way that they've met before, requires a bit of self-confidence and... If you've done it in a kind of setting where the stakes aren't so high, then it allows you to. And you also become sharper on what is definitely not likely to work. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's certain times where the strategies that you might read in the training manual are absolutely the wrong thing to do. So the one uh, thing which uh, people frequently say, mediators, I was told it's sometimes useful to let the parties vent. Hmm. So I must say on a couple of occasions I've sort of had venting sessions, I must say. They very seldom uh, yield. yielded anything. <laughs> <laughs> Just a lot of hot air. Yeah. 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 Great. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Great pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Laurie. You've been listening to The Crockcast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the Crockcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, and online at croc.nd.edu podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people to find our show. For more updates and stories from the Kroc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.